Funded by the State Library of Western Australia, this collection of stories documents experiences of the COVID-19 pandemic that hit Australia in early 2020. The COVID-19 pandemic led to the declaration of a state of emergency in Western Australia on the 16th of March. WA went into lockdown between the months of March to May, with further restrictions continuing for months after. During this time, events were cancelled, schools shut down and parks became overcrowded. Thousands of individuals, businesses, communities and organisations were severely impacted as they were forced to work from home, social distance and book emergency flights. This collection, produced by the Centre for Stories in Northbridge, Western Australia, explores these unprecedented effects and contributes a record of this remarkable time in history. This interview features Mary McConnell. Mary is the Disaster Management Coordinator at Joondalup Health Campus. Mary shares insight on the impact the pandemic had on the health sector. So my name is Mary McConnell and I am the Disaster Management Coordinator at Joondalup Health Campus. AD nurse by trade, used to work as a nurse practitioner and then came over here and you have to start right down at the bottom again and worked in AD up until it's probably about four or five years ago and then started to work as an after hours manager, clinical nurse consultant and then was asked to do the disaster management portfolio part-time and then three, four years ago started to do it full-time. We use a system called Emergo. It's a disaster management system that's developed by a Swedish university and it's used all over the world. And you can replicate your hospital and your system with whiteboards. And you're going to laugh. There's little magnetic people called goobers. And each one of them represents a member of staff and a patient. And what you do is you draw out your map of your AD department or your ICU and you give them the number of staff they would normally have and you give them their patients and then you throw 300 patients from outside at them and they have got to manoeuvre these people around and treat them within a timely fashion that they're not going to die and then you've got a medical officer that goes around going that one would have bled to death, that person has died Um, And that's what we did with the pandemic. So we set out ICU, ED, um, put our normal day-to-day patients in them and then just threw several hundred patients at them and said, they've all got flu-like symptoms, what are you going to do with them? There was a lot of debate over where we would put a flu clinic, a huge amount of debate, which is why we'd done it, because we thought, have the debate now, have the argy-bargy, then try and come up with an answer. We had several locations that we thought, okay, we can put flu clinics into those. Um, But our flu clinic is now a tent city between two of our buildings because COVID is, they felt to begin with, it was extremely dangerous to do with the air conditioning system. So it's airborne and goes through the air conditioning system. We didn't want it in the buildings anywhere. um, So we put it outside in tent city. We, We sort of based it on Disney. So you've got a little Disney queue and then you come into the tent and you scoot from one seat to the next and then you get your test and then you get to leave with a nice mask. Complete lack of PPE nationally and internationally. We never envisaged, which maybe we should have done, um, you always think that, yes, you will initially have shortages of things, same as you would in a major incident, but there's always stockpiles somewhere. Unfortunately, the manufacturers have not been able to keep up with the the day-to-day demands, we run out of things on a daily basis. I think we first heard about a mention of COVID in January, and it was a sort of a case of dust out the plans, 
see what we've got, but you know what, we probably not need it. Um, and then it went to February and it was really starting to heat up. And I had booked a flight to go home to Ireland on the 14th of February. So I thought, you know what, I'm going. If I end up in quarantine, I end up in quarantine. Um, so I went back and Australia was all over COVID and they were advertising what you needed to look out for. Arrived into Ireland and there was um, African swine flu was the only advertisement I seen. There was not a mention of COVID anywhere. I wasn't asked where I'd been, where I'd come from, had I worn a mask. It was like, put your blinkers on and don't worry about it, which was frightening. Now, we'd already looked at our um, plans and we've got a massive infrastructure within the building um, that is very unique within Western Australia. It's unique within Australia. When we'd done the redevelopment about 10 years ago, um, there had been a lot of thought put into emergency management. And I think they invested about 25 million in some of the infrastructure that we put into it. Um, so we have a cohort ward on its level two within the building. And it has got a negative pressure ward. So every room is negative pressure, which means the air flows from the patient out through the ensuite, which means it doesn't go anywhere near the staff. So you're not spreading your bugs from room to room. It's all individually isolated. We've also got nine negative pressure rooms, which is the highest level room that you can get to treat these people in. Um, so we had all of that sitting that we've never used. Um, and actually engineering about six months ago was arguing the fact that why do we do the maintenance on the internal structures of these things if we never actually use them and we're never going to use them. I said, well, we mightn't, but if we do, then we're really going to need them. So we're just going to have to suck it up, princess, and get on with it. We dusted everything off and then we started to move half of the hospital around. We kept thinking we need more time, we need more time, because no matter how you plan for things, or you always wanted to be better, you wanted to be perfect. Uh, and trying to get all the staff retrained in how to put their PPE on and off properly, which is a massive task with four and a half thousand staff um, and quite a number of medical staff that, yeah, they do it on a daily basis, but they don't do it properly. Um, and then we had moved majority of the hospital around. And on Sunday night, the 27th of March, I got a phone call from the CEO to say, look, at, um, there's a lot of political wrangling going on. We may get patients from the Artania cruise ship. No idea how sick they are. We think they're OK. Um, don't know how many we're going to get. Don't worry about it. We'll sort it out tomorrow morning. So, OK, great. Because we've had, we had phone calls previously that we may get people from different places and they never materialised. So we went in on the Monday morning and they said, yes, you're definitely getting patients. Do we know who we're getting? No. Do you know how sick they are? No. How many are we getting? No, we don't know that. Um, so <laughs> we started to move patients out of some of the other wards. And I wish we had taken a video because it was something out of a comedy act. Because we had to clear the wards of all of the pictures, any knickknacks that didn't need to be there and needed to be out of there because you've got to clean those things. So there's people running about with pictures above their heads. There's beds getting moved. Patients are getting shuffled around the entire hospital. Uh, and then 
I got a text from the doctor who was on the Artania assessing the patients. And he said, they've just left Fremantle. They'll be with you in about 40 minutes. And that's when the panic started because we thought, oh, my God, all of these people are coming. Are we actually ready? Um, and then it was just the calm. It was really quite weird because there'd been the stress and the panic and the craziness from some of the medical staff. And then suddenly we got these patients and they forgot about their fears and they forgot about all the panic and they just went into, okay, they're patients, the human beings, let's just get on with this. So these poor people turned up on two buses under police guard. They didn't know where they were going. They actually thought they were getting a flight back to Germany. Uh, they didn't speak English. We had one English speaking person out of the 30. So they had no idea where they were going to. And they turned up. And lucky enough, Tudor, who was the doctor on board, had sent me a photograph of the list of people that were coming. So we printed it out and we decided, how do we safely get all of these people from the bus up to the wards? So a bit like Noah's Ark, we took them off two by two. And we escorted each one of them up trying to get because there's a lot of clerical work there's a lot of paperwork needs to be done inside a hospital um so we brought them up two by two up to the ward and as they arrived there was medical staff there to assess each one of them as they arrived and as i am um, standing in the car park waiting to get the next two up our pager went off and it was a met call which is a medical emergency on the ward and one of the patients was already heading towards icu that was 20 minutes after arrival. Now, these people looked incredibly well. You would never have picked them out as being sick. And I've done 20 years in ED. I can spot a sick person a mile off. They were talking. Um, they didn't look short of breath. They didn't look unwell. They looked really upset and they looked very frightened. But they didn't look unwell in any way. We had 10 in ICU at one point. Um, and we had with 42 COVID positive patients at any one time. So these poor people who unfortunately got lambasted in the press, which was so incredibly unfair because they boarded that cruise ship in December when none of us knew anything about COVID. It was the trip of a lifetime for the majority of them. Sort of late 60s, early 70s. Some of them had partners, some of them didn't. Um, actually, there was one little gentleman, Walter, who we sort of all adopted because Walter didn't have any relatives. Um, he didn't have anybody with him. All the rest had, had partners with him. So we all sort of plugged for Walter and then Walter got really, really sick and poor Walter died. Everybody was absolutely devastated, completely devastated. He looked like, you know, the little man from Up? You know, the Disney movie? And it was just so devastating to... We were constantly communicating with his nephew in Germany. Um, and to have to tell somebody that their relative is dying and they can't see them, they can't communicate with them in any way, was soul-destroying for the staff. Very, very difficult for them. And then they wrote... <laughs> Sorry. Yeah, they wrote letters just to say that he wasn't on his own and you know they were with him, which was lovely. We had to get the um, the letters transcribed into German, which we do have a couple of German-speaking um, staff. So we got them to translate the letters. And then I was tasked with trying to find the details of the relatives. 
which we did through the German embassy. They were they were actually really good, um, but very good. There was two we lost two of our German um, patients, and even just the fact they couldn't have the bodies back, and because the airlines wouldn't fly them back. It's, I think it's grief that people will actually never really get over. It's, you know, it's delayed grief. You don't get to be with somebody, you don't get to see them. And then you don't even have a proper goodbye, so... Thank you for listening. For more information about the Centre for Stories, head to our website, centreforstories.com.